You're listening to the Infatuation Podcast, which is a show where I talk to and about Asian creators. I'm Curtis, and on today's Side Dish episode, we'll be talking with Sophia Hotung, who is an author and artist of the Hong Konger Anthology. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a great holiday weekend. Um, we're back here at the end of the year with a surprise edition. I told you a couple weeks ago that that would be our last episode, but I guess I lied because we're coming back with another one. And today's a super fun one because we are joined all the way from Hong Kong by Sophia Hotung. Welcome, Sophia. Hey. Hi, Curtis. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> so nice to have you here. Uh, how's your holiday season going? It Honestly... The past two years, I've just been at home with my mother because like our whole family is not in Hong Kong. Um, no one's, you know, people are quarantining 21 days. If you come from the US or the UK, it's seven days in a government literal <laughs> like ship container and then two weeks in a hotel. No one's here. It's very quiet. But you know what? It's great. It's there's no pressure. I didn't do any presents this year. It was just like <laughs> eat a lot of food and watch TV. Yeah, that that three weeks sounds pretty miserable. <laughs> It's, it ain't great. It's um, it's a real way for Hong Kong to isolate itself, both with the virus and with everything else. They basically said stay away. <laughs> yeah. Unless you really, really, really have to be in Hong Kong, you're not going to be coming to Hong Kong. You're not Kong. getting in. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, you've heard the voice of Sophia Hotung, and she's wrote, written a book called The Hong Konger Anthology, which we'll get into in a second. But I, I like to do this with people, especially people overseas. So... I like to imagine a world without Omicron or coronavirus, and we're all healthy and happy. And uh, so let's say we were doing this interview live in person in Hong Kong. Where where would be a good place? Now, forget about background noise. We'll find a way to deal with the background noise. But where, where could we go to have a little chat about your book in Hong Kong right now? Okay, so what I used to really like to do is go, go to, like, beaches in Hong Kong. So oh. I was thinking, okay, we could do like go to a beach and eat there which is something I used to do a lot as a kid but then I was like that's really sandy and messy and the equipment would get ruined <laughs> so then I was like okay what cafes are there what stuff's there and I actually have something called celiac disease which is really really annoying but basically I'm one of those people who's like I can't eat gluten mm -hmm. and I don't do it because I'm annoying I right. do it because like it would literally kill me <laughs> not that you're annoying if you don't eat gluten because you don't have celiac but I was like I'm I have celiac disease so I was like right that narrows down a lot of my options <laughs> But there is a cafe I found in Shenwan, which is like the hipster part of Hong Kong, called Dandy's Organic Cafe. Mm. And literally everything there is gluten-free to the point you feel like you're in L.A. And <laughs> I've never really found that in Hong Kong. Uh -huh. So I was so we'll, we'd go there because then I wouldn't be focused on like this meal could kill me. Yeah. And I'd be more focused. <laughs> and you'd enjoy it because it's actually good food. So okay. Dandy's. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I love I love talking to locals because we always get the inside story. So I was going to take you somewhere, but I don't think I can take you there. <laughs> that I know that, no, am I well, going to die? Probably, but uh, there's a little place. Well, the, I'll give you the idea of it. In San Francisco, there's this little place called Cafe Bakery, very <laughs> generic name. But uh, it reminds me of Hong Kong because it is, uh, now my Cantonese is terrible, but it's it's like Gong Sik Saitan, which is what we kind of call can Hong Kong style Western food. 
And it, so it's kind of had, you know, has the pork chop, the baked pork chops, which would kill you probably. But... Which would kill me, but but I'd have a great time dying. Yeah, okay. So this will be your last <laughs> meal last... ever. <laughs> what, a, what a like, what a sort of scoop for you. Like we're going on a podcast, we're learning about her, but we'll also kill her at the end. Yeah, it's like a yeah. two for one. My bad. Like sacrifice. But... <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, I appreciate the, I appreciate the effort. But that I... happens a lot though. Like people will be like, let's meet here. And then I'm like, ooh, and I go and I'm like, you eat this. I'll have water. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I like it because it's kind of the original Asian fusion, right? Hong Kong cuisine is kind of like the original Asian fusion where it's, uh, you know, just, a you know, the Portuguese influence in Macau and then the English and the Dutch and all these different influences. It's like all these international trade cities are, are fun yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, the, like you think of Hong Kong style milk tea. It's basically, oh, we have to drink British people's version of tea it sucks let's sort of make it our own yeah and then they like hong kong style western food is always fun because they'll like a recent thing i've noticed is they put cheese on everything now well (laughs) they i mean i do too i'm trying to distance myself but i do it but you'll have like cheese milkshakes now cheese is the new thing to go on like korean barbecue to go on milkshakes to go on like pancakes everything's got cheese as a thing and it's because it's euro but it's not. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same with the people. We're all like confused and mixed and just don't really know what's what we are. And we're sometimes too white or sometimes too Asian, but we're just like, we'll go with it. But that's what's great about Hong Kong, though. I, I think yeah. it's, it's such a mix of both cultures. Uh, all right. So we're, we're talking to Sophia because she's uh, in Hong Kong and has uh, long roots in Hong Kong. And so she's written her, this is your first book, right? This is my first book, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) she's written her first book, and it's called The Hong Konger Anthology, and it's available now. I got mine uh, off of Amazon. It got here like in three days. So you can get your own copy here in America in less than a week, and it's a great coffee table book. It's a good conversation starter because I have some relatives (laughs) from Hong Kong, so we had some some conversations about it. And so uh, I think... I think we were trying to trace how I found this, but I think it's from a podcast that I had heard you on and then Instagram. And and I knew I wanted to talk about it because it's such a fun, kind of whimsical, whimsical book. And so people can find you at sophiahotung.com. Is that Yeah, basically like type my name into a thing and my handle's pretty much the same throughout. Um, So Instagram, Sophia Hotung, Facebook, Sophia Hotung, website, Sophia Hotung, like you'll find it there. I sort of send the book internationally through Amazon and like local Hong Kong bookstores. But if you order it from me, I write something in it and send it to you. So you can, you can reach me quite easily. I'm not like that hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. So you all should do that if you're interested in this and let's talk about you a little bit just to, to know where you're coming from. So uh, for folks in Hong Kong or familiar with Hong Kong, you probably recognize the name Ho Tung because it's on libraries and schools and they might have seen it on a park somewhere and i guess it comes from your great great grandfather yeah like it's weird because he's had like a lot of ki- like kids and those kids have had a lot of kids so there are actually loads of people related to him but because of you know men getting the last name i've just yeah. happened to be like the first daughter in a line of men who carried the name down so and it, and it my- sounds chinese it but- sounds chinese so here's the thing. Well, actually, it's not meant to sound Chinese, so that didn't work. Basically, who he was was like, think 1910s, late 19th century. He's this guy who's born from like a Dutch uh, trader who was in Hong Kong and a um, 
uh, like a Chinese woman who was just sort of around. Um, I, I called her on one podcast. I thought she was a prostitute. And afterwards I got yelled at by my mum because she was like, she's not a prostitute. What are you doing? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I don't want to say, I don't know what she was. Her occupation's not important. She wasn't defined by her work. But she's my lovely great-great-grandmother. Great-great-great-grandmother. And um, anyway, she's Chinese. This guy she um, creates a child with is Dutch. He's mixed. And um, at that point in time, being mixed was incredibly frowned upon. It was Mm. seen as like dirty. This Dutch guy also had like a proper family who wasn't that. Uh So, um, So a lot of his illegitimate children were in Hong Kong being mixed and trying to find a way to navigate being mixed, but also being related to quite a profitable merchant. And my great, great granddad, who was called um, his last name was Ho, because when he was born, they were like, well, what do we call him? He's a bastard son. Um, oh, we should just call him H.O. because the dad's from Holland. Oh, really? So they were like, yeah, literally. <laughs> so they're like, sure, Ho's a common name. So his last name's Ho and his um, first name, his Chinese name is Kai Tung. And so he was like, I'll just get rid of the Kai. We'll bung the Ho and the Tung together. And it sounds like Austrian or German because like Achtung yeah. is a German yeah, word. Yeah. And, like Tung is a very like German Germanic sound. Yeah, yeah. So it was like it's close enough that people won't like question it they did but um <laughs> but so basically he was wandering around with a na- and he gives himself an english name which is robert so to white people he's robert hotung maybe austrian looks a little <laughs> bit not white but we won't go into that and then to like his you know chinese friends he's ho kaitung and so he manages to navigate this very interesting racial dynamic where he's not allowed to live in certain places, but then because uh, he's white passing enough, is able to like get a house on the peak where white people normally wow, live. Yeah. He's not allowed in the Hong Kong club because he's not white, but then he starts the China club and right next door and everyone's yeah. like, oh, well, hang on. Um, so he's able to do this sort of stuff and his job is working for Jardine Matheson, which is like a trading huge, company yeah. in Hong Kong, yeah. which is huge at the time. So he gets rich through that. And from there, he's just sort of used his money you know, like to build roads and things guys like to do. They like to see their names <laughs> on things. So they built a road, sponsored a dorm, you know, and um, has had many children in the process. And I just happen to be like a very distant descendant yeah. with the name. So people pick up on it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. My, my name's kind of similar. I, I have my last name is Chin, which would be yeah. Chun in Cantonese or Mandarin. But, you know, when my answers came over here, they just kind of said, well, you know, we'll go with your dialect, which would be Toisan dialect. So they called it right. Chin. But then they added an extra N to it. So it's Chin with two Ns, just because I think there were too many Chins with one N. They needed to be unique. They wanted my ancestors. <laughs> so anyway, so um, Chin with two Ns. And then when I was in college, I found out that it's actually an English name. Chin with two Ns. And Is there's it? a coat of arms. There's a coat of arms and everything. Yes. Oh my God, you're a lord. You're I could be. Entitled well, to a piece yeah. Of land no. or <laughs> but I met some guy in college. I was like, you know, the teacher was taking attendance or whatever, and, and our names were right next to each other. Like, and this is it's totally Caucasian guy. And I'm like, how did you get the last name Chin? He's like, it's an English name, and I had no clue. And if you look it up, if you Google Chin family on on Google, you'll see a bunch of English folks or people from Virginia and. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so. you've been like taken away when you were a baby from your true family. It's well, so yeah, so we went the other way. We had a Chinese name that became an English name. So. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, what are you going to do, right? So no one's who they say they are. Is the end of that story. At the end of the story. We're all kind of mixed. Yeah. 
So you were born in Hong Kong? Or? I wasn't. So where I'm born is quite political because I was born in 94. So Hong Kong went back um, or became a special administrative region to China. So uh-huh. it wasn't a colony to Britain in 97. Right. So you can imagine like a heavily pregnant woman, like my mom being like, <laughs> okay, we don't know what's going to happen right. in 1997. Could be totally fine. Could be like a bit scary. We don't know. And she's born in Hong Kong and my dad's born in Hong Kong. So if I were to be born in Hong Kong, I just have one citizenship. So they were sort of hedging their bets with me and my sister. And they took us to the UK literally a month before we were to come (laughs) out. And just so we could get passports, Mm. which has been helpful in some ways, because like I've worked in the UK now and didn't need a visa. But it's a strategy that a lot of people in Hong Kong use. Like there's a lot of talk right now about the British national overseas passport that was given to people before the handover. So Hong Kong people are British citizens, but not the same tier. Like passport (laughs) politics in Hong Kong is interesting. And I'm a case study in that 90s kid thing where (laughs) I'm like, Hong Kongers sort of rate their citizenship on how many stars on their Hong Kong ID have. And you get three stars if you have Chinese blood and it's like the most stars you can get. So I have a three star ID but I don't have a passport and I wasn't born here, which some people are like, then you're not from Hong Kong. It doesn't matter. I don't care. But, um, but yeah, so I'm like indicative of that era where parents, especially mixed parents were like, uh-huh. where do we position our children with citizenship so yeah. that they are as safe as possible and have the most potential. So, yeah. 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 Uh, and so you spent your childhood kind of, you, you went to a school in England or here in Hong Kong. Yes. So like my dad's sort of, Hong Kong American Irish my mum's Hong Kong uh, or like Shanghainese but her parent her parent moved migrated to Hong Kong um British and my mum was like okay our kids are growing up in Hong Kong that's great but I feel like they need to have some sort of British heritage so when I was 11 I went to boarding school in the UK and hated it um and good for me I actually got really sick when I was 16 while at boarding school I got like an autoimmune disease called autoimmune hepatitis and that ended up being so bad I had to come back to Hong Kong so I actually like came back to Hong Kong at 16 I didn't go to school for like a year and didn't know if I'd go back to school I was like I'll just be a waif and a stray I I like so sick I don't care I ended up going back to high school when I was 18 and um, did my two years of like my last two years of high school in Hong Kong and then I went to college in America. So in the end, <laughs> I did my mom and dad proud. I'm an international woman. Yeah, um, yeah, no, yeah. That's, that's, that's fascinating. And so college in New York, were you, a, were you a reader of The New Yorker when you were in New York? Or? Honestly, I feel, like I, I feel like I should say I was because <laughs> it's like a better story. Not really. No, I was like, in college, I worked at a newspaper. I worked at my college newspaper for four years. and was really into journalism. And I was aware of the New Yorker just because it's around and like sure. people talk about it, but I never really read it. And um, and it, I didn't start this project. So just for context, the project is basically I take New Yorker magazine covers and I change elements about them, but keep something similar so you can see a parallel. But I make my version about Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. if there's one with like a black cat in it, I've got a white sort of little mini poodle because everyone has that dog. So that's the sort of thing I do. And it would be a great story if it was like she read the New Yorker her whole life. And, but literally, this started as a joke. Like, I can't, I find it very difficult to wrap my head around this year because in March, I started, I literally, as a joke, thought I'm going to make a meme of this New Yorker cover for Hong Kong and show it with, to my friends and we'll have a laugh about it and then we'll all forget it happened. And 
it's blown up into a thing that I wasn't expecting because I never like went out to be an artist. I um like I can get back, I can get into like the context of why I started it. Sure, sure. Um, but basically, I like graduated college in New York where I didn't read The New Yorker, and um, <laughs> then I like became an auditor and I moved to Scotland just because I thought I'll go to a new city. Moved to Scotland, <laughs> was an auditor at KPMG for a very brief time because I got really sick. And I knew I was sick already because I have autoimmune hepatitis, but I was like, this is weird. This isn't the same. Mm. And but I was like, well, I know what's wrong. So I'm just doing something wrong. I know what's wrong with me. I'm like dieting weird or maybe I'm um, like not exercising enough. So I try and like carb load and I try and like exercise and I try and get up early and like be really efficient. And I just made myself sicker and sicker to the mm. point where I'd start a job, get sick, go to hospital, come out, be like, and then like start another job. And it got to the point where I was in hospital for a month in London mm. where I'd moved down to. And my mom was like, you need to come home. You need to stop working. You, we need to like figure out what's wrong with you. Mm. And along that line, I found out I had celiac disease, which was like getting worse and worse. The more I tried to carb load and the more oh. I tried to like, it was <laughs> just, I was right. like, I know what'll fix this bread. It's yeah. like, no, bread's killing you. So, um, uh. and I'd lost so much weight. It literally looked like I was a skeleton with skin pulled over me. It was terrible. Anyway, so I was really sick. Came back to Hong Kong. Um, in Hong Kong, worked a little bit in tech, which is what I was used to. But I just wouldn't stop working because I was so ashamed of like being at that point, I was 25, like a 25 year old who didn't work, yeah. who lived at home. So I was like, must go to job. Um, I got really sick. And then in like October 2020, was so sick, like just completely ran myself into the ground that I couldn't walk anymore. I was in this bed right here <laughs> before your very eyes. Um, I literally couldn't get out of bed. And um, and. I didn't know what to do. I was really depressed. And I was one of those like classic Hong Kong kids that had equated my value to my work. Sure. Like a lot of Hong Kong kids, if you don't get a certificate for something at the end of it, if you don't get a trophy, if you're not like ranked top of the class, then like, don't even talk to me. And yeah. I had, I was like a smart enough kid that I was used to doing well. Yeah. So when the only thing that like I could base my personality on was gone, I had one of those like, who am I moments, but right. much sadder and much more depressing. So I'm in that phase. I'm like, oh my God, I live at home. I don't have a job. My LinkedIn's a mess. Like, what do I tell? Like, I've had five months at this job, five months at that job. Like, it's awful. Yeah. What do I do for the rest of my life? And I'm sick and can't work anyway, no matter how hard I push myself. So, uh, and at that point, Christmas comes around and this is Christmas, not like three days ago, the Christmas, like last year. Yeah, yeah. And my mom's like, I don't know what to get you. You have everything and you're sad. Um, but here's an iPad because you don't have that. And okay. I was like, oh, that's actually cool and nice. And I had some friends who were um, who had downloaded this app on their iPads called Procreate to draw mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. I was like, I'll do that. That looks fun. Um, and I started out drawing on the iPad because I'd lost a lot of my muscles from just being in bed all the time. And I found it hard to text. I found it hard to like trace without shaking. So it started as me doing like tracing exercises. I'd literally take a photo, put it on... Um, put it on the Procreate app and then trace it. And then I was like, I can draw stuff actually. So I started drawing people and tracing people. And then I wanted to draw stuff that I didn't have pictures for. So I was like, right now I need to learn how to draw. And so in January and February, I was like watching the insurrection on TV and just the whole time like drawing and watching like CNN coverage. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was sort of 
in this weird zone where I didn't want to, it was good TV on. I know it was like serious, but it was like good TV. I didn't want to stop watching. I was just drawing absentmindedly teaching myself. And in the end was like, I actually have something here. So I put like a picture I drew up on Instagram and I just, I hadn't posted on Instagram in so long. I was like really depressed. Didn't want people to know what I was doing. Uh But I said, oh, I draw now. Like, lol. Okay. (laughs) And people were like, you draw? (laughs) Because, like, people didn't ever know me as someone who drew. I used, when I worked at my college paper, I was an editor. So I was in charge of, like, text. And we had a design team that would come in and draw, like, like, covers and stuff or images for the text we wrote. And sometimes if we were in a rush, I'd try and make something and it would look awful. And the design (laughs) editor actually had to be like, Sophia, you need to stop and you need to tell us what you need. Because this looks bad and you're making us look bad. I was like, bro. So, they, so in fact, the design editor messaged me. It was like, when did you learn to draw? Like, why couldn't you do this earlier? So, um, so I was like, oh, it's a pandemic hobby because everyone was like baking bread sure, and learning how to yeah. knit and stuff. Um, but yeah, so I was like, okay, well, I can draw now and I'm posting it and people like it. So I made like pictures of things. I drew like travel posters. I made like a meme. And then I thought, oh, I'll make another meme. I'll do a Hong Kong version of a New Yorker. And I posted that. And it got a weird reception, like way bigger than anything I'd done before. So I was like, okay, well, I need to learn how to draw anyway. I like the idea of dipping into the New Yorkers because it's not just one artist. Like if I learn from New Yorkers, I'll learn from a lot of different artists that are easy to find. And there's something funny and charming about the stories in each cover. So I thought this will be fun. I'll do a few and we'll see where it goes. And so I kept doing them. And I noticed that while I was doing them, it was helping me reflect on a lot of stuff on like being sick and like being sick and young is weird because usually people think disabled people are old or like we're in a horrible accident and so when you're sick because you worked too hard or like you don't really know why you're sick people are like "Mm, you're not really sick so it's a way it was a way for me to like process disability process like I don't know my Eurasian identity process sort of the pandemic process, like a lot of stuff, I think speaks to Hong Kong, but also speaks to my generation. And um, by doing that, I think I just hit a chord or struck a chord with people. And not everyone liked every single one, but I was doing so many so prolifically because I didn't have anything else to do (laughs) that people would stick around because one that they, that they liked would come up at some point. And after that, I was, I would use, I post them and write essays. Like I'd write a little essay in the Instagram description, but there's a word limit and it would cap out. So I was like, okay, I need to find a way to tell these stories without like having to cut myself off from sharing specific things because of the word count. So I thought I could make a book and I've always wanted, like when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer, but I put that aside because I didn't think it'd be profitable. And um, it's not really, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the art fund, my art, selling my art funds, the book. I'll just say it like that. But, um, but I was like, okay, this is a, I have nothing to lose. If I like make a book and publish it on Amazon, print on demand, I don't actually have any costs to it. I'll okay. just do it and put it out there and see what happens. And over time, the books like changed shape. It was going to be a series of interviews for a while that had its own issues. And in the end, it's become a book where there are 70 of the prints I've done a little sort of story about what goes into them. And then I've also written poems for each of them, which is weird because I'm not a poem, but <laughs> po- I'm not a poet and no one reads poems. Like yeah. unless, unless you're like an English major at a women's college, you're not going to read the poems. And before anyone gets mad, I was an English major at a women's college, so I can say that. But, um, but like, 
my mum was like, no one's going to read your goddamn book of poems. And I was like, that's okay. They'll buy it for the art and I'll have the poems for myself. <laughs> and um, it's true. Like when I talk about it now, people will be like, I had your, I got your book last month and da 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, what did you think of the poems? Oh, there are poems? Oh, my God. <laughs> Put the other side of the page. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, so because of what's happened, people were like, oh, do you sell these? Do you do exhibitions? And so I've kind of been dragged into this art world that I really had no interest in, which sounds super like privileged and stuff because <laughs> other people work for years to like do this. That's how and it works I'm, sometimes, you know? Yeah, I'm just, I'm super like rattled by it because I, this time last year, I was literally like a bed potato mm. and I never wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an author, but I sort of let that dream go. And um, so to like put on an exhibition, to like launch a book, to have people invite me on podcasts is absolutely <laughs> bizarre for me yeah. but at the same time i'm like having a great time so I'm just... so, you know sometimes that's just how it works you know sometimes yeah. you gotta luck into stuff sometimes exactly but oh. one thing that i like it's weird because a lot of people so with most artists they like go out to be artists and they um they want to focus on the art and usually people will approach them and be like can i manage stuff for you but what's weird with me is I'm actually really bad at art I'm like still not great I can only draw on an <laughs> iPad because a lot of it is understanding the tech but I'm like good at corporate stuff because that's where I was trained uh -huh. where I cut my teeth so it's a weird I notice that I'm a lot more strategic sometimes and a lot more corporate about where the art goes and I have to draw it back I have to be like there doesn't need to be a business plan for this there doesn't need to be you don't need to make this a project like you would when you had a job you can just let it happen and I've had to pull myself back from the edge every now and then to be like, the art's not good anymore because you're trying to make it a thing uh, and you uh -huh. need to think more like an artist. And it's a weird like double brain I have now where there's sure. very type A, like Hong Kong kid pre-sick me who's like, we must profit like stonks. And then there's also like the part of me that's sick and doesn't want to do any of that stuff anymore and is trying to reject that. And it's an interesting balance that I think works. And um, but every now and then I have to like check myself and bring myself back. Yeah. I think, I think I read that on your Instagram just recently that, you know, it started out as kind of therapy and fun and just an expression. And then, you know, then it became popular and then, you know, then you're trying to think about how can I make this, this, but you might lose some of the joy out of it. Exactly. I found that through doing like commission work, which is like, good work but if you're not behind what you're doing for a commission a job, and if you yeah. don't want to do it it becomes a job and you stop being creative uh -huh. and when people need a logo and your brain's like <laughs> you're like not sorry I shouldn't make faces on a podcast no one knows what I've done I made a frown <laughs> um, but like but like um it really it's like it's self-defeating if you're not in it to enjoy it you're not going to be useful to anyone right. and it's a difficult like I don't think advice ever is that helpful because it's not going to apply to everything. But in a creative industry, I think you need to prioritize liking what you're doing first. Otherwise, you're going to stop being creative and then everything's going to dry up. Yeah. So yeah. word of wisdom. So so do you have a pro like there are. So it's a it's a weekly. The New Yorker is a weekly publication. It's been going on for 100 years. So yeah. there's there are a lot of covers out there. How how do you find these covers? Are you just leafing through them and thinking out loud like, oh, this could be a Hong Kong scene? Yeah. So what I normally do is I well, what I started doing is I would go on Pinterest because there's a there are like Pinterest boards that people create of like them sorted by decades. Okay. And um, 
And so I'll either go on like Pinterest and just scroll. And Pinterest, like the algorithm it uses, just lets you see similar ones. So if I like one, but it's not quite right, I'll click on it and it'll show me similar ones. So I'll usually scroll through Pinterest, save stuff. And then when I have like a folder of like covers, I'll go through and think, okay, I want to do that one. And it's going to be this now. It's I'm changing like kids painting Easter eggs to my cousins and my sister and me like playing mahjong around a table. So I'll change that and um, and I'll go to the New Yorker website where they're all like cataloged and I just download like a copy of it. I use it as a reference photo and then I literally have it side by side with my Procreate app and start drawing. Sometimes I do it the other way around. Instead of looking at New Yorker covers, I'll think, okay, I want to do a cover about this. And the like, the one I did that was the hardest was I wanted to do a cover for domestic helpers because there's such an integral foundation to Hong Mm -hmm. Kong and are often invisible, not given a lot of rights. And I thought there was a cover that had to be done for that if I was going to do a cover of Hong Kongers, but it had to be done right. Like it's very easy to minimize it into or trivialize it or make it like um like do a sort of fake sort of fetishization of like a, a cleaning lady. Like I just didn't want to make it disrespectful, make it look like I was trying to profit off like that situation, yeah, yeah. especially not being Filipino at all. So um I was thinking like, what can I do? And there are a lot of New Yorker covers with a character who's a French maid. And I was like, that's not right. That's, I shouldn't do like the staff shown in New Yorker covers in like the 1940s. That doesn't look right. And it's not accurate. And then I was like, well, Filipino helpers or like helpers in general, they're not just Filipino, um, are often maternal. They often take on the role of a mother. And a lot of women in Hong Kong can only work, including my mum, because they have support at home to take care of their children. And so I was like, okay, I'll look at mother covers. So I was like, New Yorker mother covers, like scrolling through. But it still wasn't getting it. And I thought it would still be a bit too trivial or just not quite right. And it would look like a white girl trying to make a domestic helper cover. So I sat on it for a really long time and by accident just happened upon a picture from like the 1940s during World War II of a munitions factory like um Mm -hmm. you can see in the background they're like they're bullets or something and it's lunch break at the munitions factory and there's a pot of men and a pot of women and one man is looking over at the pot of women and the pods and the way they're sitting reminded me of how domestic helpers will sit on sundays in like walkways and parks and i thought that's it that's the one and weirdly it's come from world war ii but the structure of the groups is what i noticed yeah so i changed it now they're both pods of women and they're eating like Jollibee, which is a very like popular chain here. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. in like Causeway Bay, which is honestly Causeway Bay has more. There are different alcoves where domestic helpers go and they're kind of culturally segregated just because you gravitate towards other people from your country or from sure. Causeway Bay is, I think, one of the more mixed places on the island. There are a lot of places in Kowloon, but on the island, there's a lot of Indonesians that go to um, Causeway Bay, a lot of Filipino ladies. So. Um, more men and women mixed and stuff like that. So I thought that's a good location. There's an iconic bridge that goes like in a circle. It's pink and yellow and colorful. Uh So I thought it would be fun to juxtapose a very bright and colorful sort of scene with like nail polish and people on their phones chatting, having fun, Jollibee. But it's there's a real sad truth, which is that they have to spend Sunday away from their families, away from like especially now in the pandemic they've gone years without seeing their families it's very difficult to go to and from the philippines from hong kong or indonesia or any of these countries where they will normally emigrate from 
And so I think I did, I don't want to be like, I did a great job, but I think I, I'm very glad I waited for the cover to come to me rather than trying to force a cover. Forcing it yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it seems like some of your work is autobiographical a little bit. Like you'll have Eurasian girl sits at a banquet table. Yeah, exactly. Or it's you'll me. have the, I think it was your ballet school. Uh, yeah. Little girls on the sidewalk. Is that a big part of what you kind of, not a big part, but it seems like a good number of the covers are autobiographical. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes back to, it won't be authentic if it's not coming from a place of like familiarity. And I do make some pieces that I'm totally unfamiliar with. And I try to interview for that. So um, I worked with a friend to help me interview like a street cleaning custodian Mm -hmm. and did a piece on her called Water Break. And it's not actually that popular. People don't like it, maybe because the art's bad. But but I think it's because it lacks some sort of connection because I'm super privileged. I've never been a street cleaner. So I recognize my view is very, very narrow and it's privileged and it's white passing and it's female and it's educated and there are so many other types of Hong Kongers who aren't those things but at the same time I think about like other I I mean I'm not comparing myself to other like great artists but work-wise you look at like Hemingway he only does a certain type of person his character is always like the disgruntled man who's American (laughs) but somehow in Europe and and like no one is angry at him for being like, well, why don't you write about Spanish people if you're in Spain? It's right, like, exactly. he didn't know it. <laughs> so I'm just like creating what I know. Yeah. And because Hong Kong is so small, because it res- there's a generation of these mixed kids who are usually like second gen mixed or first gen mixed. But we've grown up in a Eurasian sort of environment where we don't feel like we're the odd one out. Like my fiance, he's, um, he's half Japanese, half like, like Ashkenazi Jewish American. And he will tell me like, he'll go to the synagogue. And when he was a kid, he was the Asian boy at the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, what's a Japanese boy doing in, at temple? <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm like as Jewish as I am Japanese. Yeah. yeah. And in Hong Kong, you don't have that kind of experience being mixed because everyone's so mixed. Right. But that brings on its own kind of like issues of, you start to break down how mixed you are. Uh-huh. And so like, I'm white pass. I'm really white passing. I have friends who are very Asian looking and it becomes like split the splitting of hairs of who's Asian enough, who's entitled to mm-hmm. like claim Hong Kong or as their identity <laughs> becomes in like a sure. concept. So yeah. all these things are very personal to me, but they're not so unique that no one else gets it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people latch on to it because people get it. And I make fun of like the expat community a lot. <laughs> I get like sucked into the expat community a lot just because I look like an expat yeah. and I like went to school with a lot of expats at international school, but I sort of make fun of it in the book. And then like, the, sorry, tangent, but the way I construct the book, it's not chronological. It's not alphabetical. I sort of take you starting with like Hong Kong history. And then we talk about like Hong Kong as an island, nature, things that go into like the animals and what was there then it goes into like work and women and how that's developed over time in Hong Kong. And then it goes into like childhood. Uh And as it comes out of that, there's like a sort of flow to it. Do you read them in order? And then it gets to a point where it starts to satirize like mainly white people that come into Hong Kong and how they originally colonized it, but how there's a bit of entitlement to the white community. Mm -hmm. Like speak to me in English. It's like, you're in Hong Kong. Like, (laughs) come on, Um, you're in China. Um, Uh So it talks about, it starts by mocking, I would say like that sort of expat, that classic entitled expat. 
But then it also goes into talking about what are expats entitled to do if we're going to police their behavior? Like, can they participate in a dragon boat race or is that appropriation? Like, at what level do you say you don't belong here and you shouldn't be engaging? And at what level is someone like innocently trying to be part of something and not trying to like profit off it or like you hear about white people like taking congee and being like it's rice porridge it's like no (laughs) so at what level is um are you allowed to engage in a culture i get like with the hong konger anthology or the hong konger in general i get a lot of people saying you shouldn't be doing this it's like not yours you're profiting off of like a country or like hong kong while it's suffering this isn't good Hmm. and i think there's they're like you're not from here you don't get to do that and yeah i wasn't born here i get that but I think the reason I wasn't born here is kind of a big <laughs> explainer as to the fact I am from here. Yeah. Um, and in the end, at the end of the day, I don't, I think I like give back enough and try to like funnel what I do reap down to not just be like, <laughs> but um, I, I do find it very interesting, this discussion everywhere, not just in Hong Kong, in America, it's huge. Like, do you belong or yeah. are you an, an other? And who gets to decide that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have a, uh, if I could just read your, in the forward, you say, it's kind of a disclaimer, right? You say, I am and was acutely aware while creating this anthology that my viewpoint is not representative of all Hong Kongers. This anthology contains the perspective of a privileged, native English-speaking, international school-educated, white-passing, Eurasian sickly woman. I heavily contemplated representation in this book and questioned whether my voice was allowed to be so prevalent when it is not representative of the standard Hong Kong experience, whatever that is. However, this book was never meant to be a field guide to Hong Kong, to be the ambassador of Hong Kong culture, to be the tome which present to the world to cry, this is us. And so, I mean, I think you're very aware <laughs> That yeah, you know there are you know eight million people in Hong Kong that are that are not you, you know, but exactly, yeah, but, like but who is? <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. I just I feel like as long as I'm trying and I know that I'm doing my best, I don't need to worry so much about scrutiny. And I think especially in this day and age, people are very quick to get angry and very quick to assume. And I can all I can do is try to pass stuff down like give credit where it's due but also not completely put myself down in the process yeah and I do I think I I don't know I think sometimes I'm super harsh on myself and other times I am like this is great and I'm having a great time and I'm not thinking Mm -hmm. so I just have to be cognizant that it's allowed I'm allowed to fluctuate as long as I come back to some grounded center where I'm not being an awful person yeah yeah well someone told me that in, in the podcasting world, and I'm pretty sure it's true for any creator, is that you know you've made it when, one, you can get an assistant, right? and two, yeah. you have haters. <laughs> you know, so... Okay, I'm so, halfway there. You're halfway there. <laughs> so if you start getting hate comments, hey, yeah, you, you're, you're making it as a creator, I guess. <laughs> yeah. My mom likes to think of herself as an assistant. She'll, like, come with me to things and be like, can I just watch? I'm like, yeah, you can watch. And the next thing I know, she's, like, giving out the wrong change at, like, a Christmas <laughs> fair. Day. Like, what are you doing now? <laughs> That's not how much it costs. Now, did I read that? Yeah. She she has an art school, right? She kind of, and she dragged she you along. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I gladly went. Like, okay, so she was one of those, like, 90s women that, one of those 90s women, what does that mean? But she was, like, one of those women who was, like, 
a bit too conservative to be part of like the bra burning feminist movement, but was aware that she needed to have like her own financial independence. She wanted to work. She was going to be bored out of her brain. She like just didn't choose to um, like be a stay at home mom. And, but my dad also didn't choose to be a stay at home dad. So she was like, okay, I need to find a way to be around my kids and raise my kids without having to sacrifice my own career and stuff like that, which was really prickly in Mm. Hong Kong and everywhere at that time. Sure. Very few benefits. And she worked at PwC and was like a management consultant. And she left when she, I think she left when like she was pregnant with me or something. And um, when I was about two, she thought, okay, I need to do something. She had like tried to start a business, but it hadn't really worked. And she didn't want to have like a cute little wife business that my dad sort of was like, that's cute. You do your thing. You sell, you like sell jewelry in your living room or something. So she, um, so she was like, okay, I want to like have a business that I get scalable and that gives me something to like work for and earn and enjoy, but I don't want to never see my kids. And she really likes hobbies. My mom and I both really, we love a craft. We love like arts and crafts, <laughs> knitting, sewing, cross stitch, yeah. painting, stamp collecting, like all that stuff. So she was like, I should start a school where we just like do arts and crafts because then the kids can come and like I'm babysitting them, but I'm at work. Because <laughs> before like there was nothing for us to do. We'd like, I remember once we went to like a trampolining class at Hong Kong U because there was nothing else for a two-year-old to do. So um, so she started this like little classroom and she had two kids already, me and my sister in there. So other kids, jo- <laughs> our friends joined. And then she was like, right, we're getting a bit too crowded in this room. Let's have two rooms oh, now these kids want to sing and dance. Let's have three rooms. One of them's now for performing arts. And it's grown into this very, very like lovely sort of environment where there are centers around Hong Kong now. And it's a bit more commercial because it's had to be to scale. But I've grown up there my whole life. Most of my friends I either met through there or met at school and then dragged them along. So we've all kind of grown up there. Like right now, one of my best friends from middle school who I met when I was nine, she... um. She helped me on the book. Her name's Janice. She's in the acknowledgements. She helped me on the book. We were best friends when we were nine. We were in like a band together. She now works at Kids Gallery. I work <laughs> part-time there. She works there. Uh-huh. And um, and it's just great. And Janice like embodies that spirit of the Kids Gallery kid who like went there, had a great time, now works there and sees these kids and is like, you guys don't understand how cool this place is. It's just, it's it makes me so happy to talk about it. And I think it's weird that, I ended up having an artistic <laughs> career because the whole time my mum was like, she's very British. She's like, you can have a hobby. You can have a hobby, but do not do an art career. You need to support yourself. <laughs> and so now it's like, I'm an artist, and but I'm supporting yeah. myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think she's really pleased that we've both been able to do things we love for work yeah. and that, and support ourselves um, with that work. So yeah, she's definitely behind a lot of, like it's an enormous privilege to be her kid because like if you go to an art school every day after school for your whole childhood you better come out with something handy Um, and I don't think I could have done this if it wasn't for like her raising me in an art school sure but also like her giving me an iPad for Christmas that was a big like important factor but yeah like that's when I think about privilege and stuff it's not just the blanket stuff we talk about like race and gender or whatever it's also like my mom really set me up well yeah and um and she's a big reason why yeah. i'm like here in so many ways obviously <laughs> but it wasn't forced it wasn't like oh you have to do this is something that's for the fun. thing yeah. 
what like makes me really like curdle inside is when parents will like drag their kids over to me and be like see look what she did with her ipad you have an ipad why aren't you doing this uh-huh. and i'm like no don't tell them that they're not gonna want to do it um because you have to like like with most things people aren't going to do stuff if they're told to do it sure. like like with masks people don't want to wear masks because <laughs> like, i'll do what i want it's, but if they wanted to they would it's the same with like forcing anything like if you force a kid to be a doctor and they don't want to do it it's exactly the same forcing a kid to be an artist and they yeah, don't want to do yeah. it and it comes back to like if the enjoyment's not there the art's not good sure um yeah. but yeah she never in, if anything she was like don't be an artist i don't want to support <laughs> you in your 40s and um ha 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 i did it <laughs> you did both yeah take that mom uh. um but yeah i think she's she, she says she's proud i'll believe her <laughs> Well, should we talk a little bit about the art? I have a few that yeah. I want to mention, and uh, sure. I, I'd love to hear which, what your favorite covers are. Um, yeah, get my book I, out. Um, so the one, and I didn't realize it was on the cover until after I picked it, but I really liked Portals. <laughs> yeah. And um, mean, yeah. so it's, it's, now some of your covers are pretty straight, you know, yeah. from New Yorker. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Some are pretty straight from, you know, the New Yorker has six doors on it and yours has six doors. But I think I like it because this is one of my little things. Whenever I go on a trip to a place, especially somewhere colonial with a little bit of history, I love taking pictures yeah. of doors and, and just seeing. Oh, really? I do. Yeah. So, you know, Quebec or, you know, Taiwan, you know, anywhere I, anywhere I go, I like to look at doors and take little pictures, especially if they're colorful. So this one jumped out at me. Um, oh, what you, brilliant. What, 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 what went through your mind picking this cover and, and why did you choose oh, this one? Honestly, this is a very popular cover. And a lot of, I did something on my Instagram a while back being like, pick your favorite Hong Konger. And it was like a bracket. So you voted every day and it <laughs> advanced. And Portals kept winning. And I was like, why are, like, people are not liking the ones I spent ages on and really had meanings for. They're picking the one that I literally was like, well, doors, they're Chinese doors. Okay. Like, literally, that's all that went through my head. And people read into it a lot. Like, what does it mean? Some of the doors have, like, Chinese on them. I love that. And, um, and people are like, well, what's the significance of the Chinese? I'm like, I don't know. I, like, I literally took photos of doors and then drew them. Like, that's all that happened. Yeah. But then I was like, it's kind of hilarious that I drew, like, it's stupid of me that I drew these doors and didn't think to check what the Chinese said. <laughs> like, what does it, I have no idea. And then I was like, well, that's why people say I'm not like a real Hong Konger. Cause I didn't check. I don't know. I can't read it. So, um, so the poem is a haiku, which is basically a, like a take on, you know, that riddle where it's like, there are two guards at a door. One always tells the truth. One always lies. Do you know that riddle? I, I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was like, okay. So assuming that there are two guards at the door, like two signs at the door, and one lies and one tells the truth, it doesn't make any difference to you if you literally can't understand either of them or read either of them. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. to you, you're not even trying to like engage with the guards. You're like, oh, door. Yeah, and that's yeah. a lot of like kids in Hong Kong who grew up not learning Chinese well enough are like that. There's just so much that we don't even register. Because mm-hmm. when you're like when I'm in the US or the UK or any sort of English speaking country, you can hear stuff that other people are talking about on the train. And you're yeah. like, hmm. like <laughs> I didn't eavesdrop on people till I went to the UK and was like, I can eavesdrop I can because my Cantonese just wasn't good enough. Uh-huh. And I do feel like I lose a lot of like Hong Kong sort of yeah. chatter and yeah. absorb less of it because I just can't pick up on my surroundings. Yeah. And so in the end, the 
print has become about that, even though I didn't mean for it to. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I like that. You know, the cast iron is is so. I, yeah, the mailboxes. But I tried to do like every like quite religious ones, like temple ones, quite extravagant ones. But then like the the blue one is actually from an apartment I used to live in in Shenguan、yeah. with like the mail always like I feel like I was the only person who lived there. No one ever got their mail, so I would just put mail everywhere. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a good cover for you to have on your cover. It's kind of like an entryway, you know, the portal. Yeah, I did think a lot about how what to put on the cover because I was like, I don't want to design a separate New York,、uh, separate Hong Konger for the cover,、uh-huh. but I can't really use any of the current ones because they're like part of a bigger piece. So I、right. said, what if I just take the doors out? Because the doors are popular and、um, people like them, and it's colorful enough. And, yeah. So yeah, it worked in the end. Yeah. Yeah. The the other one or another one that I liked was it's called Time Difference. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. That, so that one gets a little deeper, right? We're getting into.、Yeah. So the original looks like it's.、Uh, well, you can explain the original. It, it's a doctor. Yeah. So this came out of the pandemic. If you're reading along at home, it's page fifty-five.、Um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone's got the book,、um, but yeah, it's like. A doctor, the original, the New Yorker, is a doctor during the pandemic,、right. and she's totally swamped. She's in the corridor of a ward, and、um, she's like saying good night to her children who were in bed with their dad about to go to sleep. And、mm-hmm. the gist is like, I think it came out. When did it come out? April sixth, twenty twenty. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it came out like the beginning of the pandemic, where doctors were just completely overstretched and had no warning and weren't used to it at the beginning. Yeah. And it's a sad piece. And when I saw that. I thought of boarding school, and when I went to boarding school, we did not have iPhones, but、um, <laughs> and we did not have like FaceTime. We had、yeah. like a payphone.、Um, right, right. God, I sound old, but it reminded me of boarding school. And this is actually the only Hong Konger that's not set in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. It's set in like a generic British boarding school. You can see the kids are wearing uniforms. Someone's got like a hockey stick because that's very British. Right. Right.、Um, and there's a kid from Hong Kong. Who people have told me looks like Harry Potter, which I kind of agree with.、Um, who's FaceTiming his parents at like, I think it's. I'm pretty sure. Well, I'm pretty sure I made it. It's the million like person march that happened、uh, on like June seventh of 2019. The yellow umbrella.、The... Yellow umbrella. It's that whole movement. And this、yeah. is one of my more political pieces, but it's less about the politics of that and more about the feeling of being so isolated from your home、yeah. and seeing it just. You know, go up in flames, or just so much unrest and so much disagreement and conflict, and being a child, being unable to help, but also being so far away. And when I went to boarding school, nothing like crazy was happening in Hong Kong. It was I went like between two thousand six and two thousand eleven. So besides like the financial crisis, nothing really happened.、Mm-hmm. But, but you can did, imagine what it would be yeah. like. Yeah, and I felt real homesickness for the place, and like things were changing, and I couldn't do anything about it or watch the change. And I'd come home every. Like summer, and it would be different,、mm-hmm. and so that feeling is there, but it's heightened because there's actually like conflict now that you have to deal with, and your identity you have to deal with, and also no one around this character knows what's going on because like、right. people sometimes think Hong Kong's in Japan, like they don't know what's really <laughs> happening.、Yeah. So it sort of shows isolation, but also it's a family photo.、Mm-hmm. There, it's like very clearly a mum, dad, and two kids, but、yeah. there is that separation there. Yeah, really、yeah. like it. Uh, and then the next one is the one that we talked about a, a minute ago. Is Water Break? I, I like this one.、Oh. the The original art is is amazing. <laughs> Thank、um, you. And 
but it's not exactly it's the pose is the same as the original yeah but the even the style is different and you know of, of course the subject is different yeah and, and this and you said this one is not your most popular one though because it's kind of detached I'll let you from in on your a secret. experience not a single person has bought this one. Like most, <laughs> like most of them have been bought at least once. Not a single person has bought this one. No one's asked after it ever. So I'm very surprised that you like it. <laughs> it's um honestly, it came out two weeks after the the New Yorker version of this came out two weeks after the New Yorker version of Time Difference. You can uh-huh. check the dates. So the dates on all the Hong Kongers are the same as the New Yorkers, uh-huh. and that's a way for you to like check back to see the original. Right. Um. But yeah, this one like artistically was very different from what I normally do because usually I will do more stuff with the Procreate app. Like I'll use something called clipping masks, which will let me basically cut, like wash a whole layer in a color. And then I can put a layer underneath and the color will only show up on the layer underneath. I don't know if that makes any sense, but basically I use a lot of tech normally okay. to make the art. With this one, it's all color pencil. Uh-huh. It's entirely like by hand color pencil, which was ballsier for me because I'm not, comfortable with that I'm a lot more comfortable relying on the iPad to do a lot of my work Mm -hmm. for me so this doesn't have very clean lines it's all pencil really and I wanted Mm -hmm. it to look like someone had done it in color pencil yeah um it really doesn't have a story behind it I did like a little research I spoke to this lady who um who was very reluctant to talk to me and I did have to like use my friend who speaks better Cantonese to sort of cajole her Uh and there was a sense of like, she says that she was reluctant to talk to me because she thought I'd be another sort of white person who would take pity on her and have a weird concept about mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And there is this very different idea about work between like Western and Asian cultures where you, um, Western people are like, work is, a pre- well, not, God, these are huge generalizations. Take everything with, I say with a grain of salt, but there is a mentality that work is oppressive and it's there's exploitation involved and that's very true like you look at like my alma mater Colombia is having a massive union strike right now mm-hmm. but so it's there's a point to that and I agree with that but it gets to the point sometimes where work is always seen as negative and it's always seen as detrimental whereas there is a traditional more conservative Chinese belief that work gives you joy and purpose and there's meaning and pride and dignity to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she was concerned that I would whittle her experience down to being um being about like oppression when she actually likes going out in the day Mm -hmm. and seeing her friends and the break she's having isn't like oh my god it's awful out here it's more just like taking a break and then I'll go back and I'll be helpful and I'll clean up and um and one of the questions we asked her was like is that you sound very positive but what's the negative part of your experience like uh, one of the negatives of your experience there must be some and she just said well sometimes I get annoyed at nature because it keeps it makes Blows. more of a mess sometimes <laughs> yeah. than people yeah. and I was like haha yeah I guess so and so the <laughs> poem ends up the poem's actually based on another poem what I do sometimes is because I parodied like the New Yorker I was like it'd be fun to parody some actual poems so this one's a parody of an ancient Chinese poem it's called traveling early to Shangshan and it's basically like about a voyage but I've adapted it and I keep like some of the syntax keep some of the structure but now it's about this lady going to work and you think that she's going to be like these kids with their bottles and their pollution but actually she's annoyed at like a tree for shedding leaves and that's sort of the poem in the end do you mind reading that to us yeah sure okay so it goes 
In the morning, she starts to move pre-alarm, traveling, thinking numbly of home. A tram dings an overturned bin, the moon still up on the edge of the mount. Footsteps warming the dew, leaves fell from hiking trails overnight. Bougainvillea bloomed and wilted, a straw-ended broom under fine stickiness on its handle. To sweep and sweat, sweep and sweat, nature's groundkeeper. I feel weird reading like my not rhyming ones. So normally when people ask me to read them, they're like, read one that rhymes. And I'm like, okay, let's go. So when I read the deep ones, I'm not actually used to reading them aloud because I feel like I had to compromise. I was like, I need fun ones for like people who don't do poetry. Like ones that rhyme and you get it and it's fun and there's like a twist yeah. at the end. Yeah, yeah. But that, so, but I have like those ones which are serious and I'm one of those people that like deals with discomfort by like joking about stuff so when things get deep and meaningful i'm like Ooh, quite deep. <laughs> but yeah so that is one of my deeper ones yeah i mean if you've been to asia you've you know this woman right if you've been anywhere in and it, it does seem like very thankless work and it's just like never ending yeah. But, you know, my mother-in-law has that philosophy where, you know, she's in her 60s and we're like, when are you going to retire? And she's like, why would I retire? <laughs> you know, like, Same with my mom. <laughs> she's like nearly 60 and she's like, I love my job. I'm like, OK. But, I, but it's weird because like I feel that I feel like I can't work because I'm always going to be at risk of making myself sick again and having a relapse again with my autoimmune diseases. But I love working. I like I loved audit. I loved Excel spreadsheets. I love like I did it. Not. I did it partially to be like, must impress boss, but also because I was like, this is kind of fun. <laughs> and so it's a weird thing to navigate. But it's like, I guess it's like eating chocolate. Like, just don't eat so much chocolate that you get sick. Like, just do stuff in moderation and you'll be fine. Um, but I do think like the concept of work is getting torn apart right now because of like the great resignation, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it was an interesting poem to write given the context because that interview was about how different people look at work yeah. and how some people find it very rewarding and other people find it very exploitative. And you'd think like a custodian, like a street custodian would find it exploitative, but actually she was like, no, I'm, there are my friends back there and I'm having a great day. Like, don't label me. Yeah, and no, being at home would be misery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's like, I'm out and about. It's fine. <laughs> do, you, do you have any poems or, or pictures that you really... Uh, just it doesn't have to be like it's the best but just the ones that you like I have one but it's long but it has a fun twist at the end okay. so I'm gonna go for it because it's a popular print this one's one of my like better selling prints yeah, yeah. so it's Hogwalker it's on page 17 um, but basically in this print it's got all these natural Hong Kong like natural Hong Kong wildlife and okay. Hong Kong's known as like a shiny city but we've actually got a lot of um, like wildlife if you go out to the new territories which is where I live you'll like see a cow crossing the road and just be like, there goes a cow. Uh, like my mum, we moved out here in, in the new territories, like when it was still really, really jungly. Now jungle, it's a yeah. bit more developed, but my mum once thought she nearly hit a kid running across the road and it turned out to be a monkey. Ooh. She was like, she was like, oh my God, like a child just ran across the road. And we were like, and we got out of the car and it was a monkey. And we were like, oh my God, okay. It's not a naked <laughs> child, <laughs> but it's literally quite feral out there. So yeah. I thought it'd be fun to bring those animals, which are quite feral, into um, into like Wan Chai, which is quite a developed area. Right, right. Uh, so there's a building that's blue and gray in Wan Chai, so I put it in there. Anyway, so this is the poem, and it lists all the animals. So when I read this to like kids and stuff, I get them to point to the animal as I name them to see if they can do all the names. So you can do that at I'll home. I'll try. I'll play along. Okay. All right. So it goes. It seemed the perfect summer job to dally in the sun, to collect fees and tie up shoes and hit up the dog run. 
Miss Ma paid me 300 to leash up her mutt drake, and Jaden Wong paid 500 to care for his pet snake. Twinkle Jung paid extra from her day job's till to get special treatment for her elderly spoonbill. Jerome lent me his gecko, Kyle lent his sow, and Farmer Gung from North Saikung gave his brooding cow. Rainbow lent her monkey, and Aaron Kwan his bat. Mason lent his pangolin, tortoise, and civet cat. The grasshopper and mongoose were both from Caroline, and Mr. Snowed from Borat Road lent his porcupine. So we all walked together, a parade of merry beasts. All could heal, and no one squealed at the rigid leash. We then came to the dog run, and so as not to smother, I unhooked all the leads to find that they'd all eat each other. <laughs> So that's like the fun one I do with the, that's what I mean when they're like poems with a twist at the end it's like oh they all ate each other now this art uh so the actual woman in this picture is almost almost identical to the New Yorker yeah so so what I try to do is I always keep one element the same oh. so, sometimes I go a bit too far away like the um Campbell's Troop one of the ballet school that went like way off but it was so meaningful to me I kept it yeah but usually it's a difficult balance because obviously I don't want to rip off the New Yorker to the point where I'm just like copying them. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. And I wasn't planning on doing this like professionally. So now I'm like, oh, there's always that risk. Um, but I always keep one element. So in this element, it's the woman. And like some of her leads and stuff go in similar directions. But then what I will normally do is I'll take the, um, there's a part before I start drawing where I dissect the original. And I'm like, right, well, keep the woman. Circle the horse. That's now a cow circle the dog that's now this circle like the parrot that's now a kite like um i will sort of plot out what goes there instead but i'll keep like a single element so you can be like there's the parallel so the woman's kept but one but like some things i changed the main thing i changed is her keys are gone and her uh. keys are gone because um i've noticed in hong kong recently like unless you live in an old building no one has keys anymore huh. Keys, keys and wallets are being completely like yeah. gotten rid of in Hong Kong. I just pay for everything with my phone. You can get into places scanning your phone now. There's like a hand scan on my friend's um, <laughs> apartment block. There are no beep codes. There's no like key anymore. So I thought the key wouldn't be realistic. In Hong Kong, it's all on your phone now or it's like biometrics. Yeah, so yeah. no keys. And so I'll try and do that. I'll try and like remove what doesn't make sense. And I'll try and be very deliberate about why I'm including what I'm including and why I'm removing what I've removed. Now, are there little Easter eggs for locals only? Like sometimes you'll see something like you'll throw in something that only people who live in Hong Kong would know or. I mean, with day off with the domestic helper one, I definitely threw in the Jollibee because that's like <laughs> yeah, from yeah. the Philippines and, right. um, and quite popular. I'm trying to think of like other things that Hong Kong people would know. I'm having a flip through. But you Honestly, might do it like, subconsciously. <laughs> may... I do it subconsciously. I'm not yeah. like thinking about it. I mean, there's one called Cupidity. And um, it's this bar is now closed. But in Cheta House, which is in Central, it's like a shiny building. There used to, there's this whole floor that is entirely dedicated to Armani, like Giorgio Armani. Uh -huh. It's super bougie. And there used to be a bar called like Armani Privé. And it had this massive pink balloon that you could see from the street on the balcony. And it was basically like where... I, w I went there once when I was about 18 with some friends. We were all just like old enough to go. And we thought it was like the bar to go to because we had seen the pink balloon and saw like, you know, Turkish businessmen on Instagram there. So we were like, okay, that's where to go. <laughs> and it was like, it was dead. And it was so uncool. And the party was happening like in Lang Kwai Fong five minutes away. And it was just such a weird feeling to be in a place where it was 
desperately trying to be trendy and wasn't. So when I did this version of the New Yorker cover, I um I was like, yeah, if you were a guy really trying to impress a girl, but you were just hopeless at it, you'd be like, yeah, we'll go to the Armani bar. And it's like, no one's there. It's empty. So I guess, I don't know, maybe that was just like the one night where it was like that and normally it was pumping, but it's closed now, so we'll never know. Um, But I was like, yeah, if you know, you know, that if you go to that yeah. bar, on occasion, it could be totally empty and you're not impressing anyone. <laughs> That's a so, good way to put it. But yeah, it is subliminal. A lot of like the things I do, I think it's just me assuming that everyone knew and then someone will be like oh is that a hong kong thing and i'm like oh yeah it is i I didn't realize that was so subliminal but yeah now do you have an idea who your audience is well i guess you do shows a little bit yeah so it's weird because depending on what i create it has value that might not match the audience i started with so when i started it was just the people on my instagram it was my friends mainly in america who were like we don't care about hong kong and like my friends from childhood who were from hong kong um so at first people were like okay cute you can stop now but when i started talking about it like i went on um kyle lang's what kind of asian are you podcast like i started garnering this group of like gen z and millennial Asians all from like across the Uh Asian diaspora in the US and the UK and Australia in Hong Kong and so that became my audience but we're millennials we're Gen Z we're all in debt and we all don't want to pay stupid money for like massive prints (laughs) and I actually I did a blog post recently on my website about how like the Hong Kong started and everything that happened month by month and in around June I was like I need to print these to display in an exhibition And so I decided to like do the high end thing and make a really lovely crisp print and make it limited series. And I was going to sell it for 8,000 Hong Kong dollars. (laughs) I was really excited. I was like, oh my God, okay. I hope someone buys it. And I had a mailing list of people who said, when it's ready, let us know. So I emailed it out and I was like, they're ready. I've printed five to start with. They're $8,000 or like 8,888 or something like lucky. (laughs) And I was like, go nuts. And I got an email back from someone saying, there's a mistake on your website. It says 8,888. Did you mean like 888? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's it's definitely like almost $9,000. And she's like, oh, well, never mind then. Mm. And I didn't sell one for about five months and I, or four months. And I thought, oh my God, I've just like shelled out all this money uh-huh. to print these things and frame these things. No one's buying them. What do I do? And then I have all these other friends like gen z friends who are like can we buy it can we buy it and i'm like yeah do you have eight thousand dollars and they were like well no no so i had to alter my business model and now like those big ones go for way more than eight thousand eight hundred eighty eight hundred dollars but i also sell smaller ones that you can just get off my website and they're not signed they're not limited series but they're still great quality and they fit that demographic and so trying to like this is when like my business mind came in i was like okay i need to like cater to the audience i have but also tap into another audience that's willing to pay stupid amounts of money for art. Yeah, yeah. And so I've had to like strategize that, which is why I was like, I need to get into an exhibition. If I get into an exhibition, I'll meet people who are comfortable spending that much money on art. And it's like a foreign concept to them. And so I did that. And then with the book, the book's audience is slightly different just because you don't need to invest that much in, right. in it. You just buy the book and you have all the prints. Um, but what I tried to do with that is, from the beginning I said it'll come out in December just because I thought I could catch the Christmas crowd and the book is generic enough that you can kind of give it to anyone who has a link to Hong Kong yeah and that was that was pretty that was a little strategic of me I was like 
I don't want to make it so specific that um, people are like, okay, I don't really want to hear about this random girl's like disease. <laughs> like it's fine. So, um, so I think I made it generic enough that you don't need to read the poems. You don't need to know anything about me. Just flip through and look at the pictures. Great. Um, but then if you wanted to, there is that extra layer with the text. But then I think about like, the way the project used to be with the book is I originally was going to interview a person for every single print. And that was super difficult to do uh -huh. just because I couldn't find an interviewee for every single print. And a lot of the interviews ended up becoming really, really intense to the point where I couldn't do it justice yeah. in like a page. Yeah. Or I ended up shouldering like a lot of, I became like a counselor to stuff completely unrelated to the book and felt incredibly guilty because I didn't know if I was giving good advice. Should I give advice? Oh God, I'm giving advice. Like it became a huge project where I was like, I need to stop because this isn't this. I'm going to get myself into trouble if I keep like taking on this role. And um, I was worried for a while. I was like, well, if people aren't being interviewed for this book, no one's going to buy this book because the only reason people would buy it is if they were in it. And I was really concerned. I was like, no one's going to buy this if they're not in it. Da, da, da. But it's done well enough, I think, with the art alone. And I'm actually doing something with a lot of the interviews I did in the future because mm -hmm. they are good. And I don't want to just like, yeah, like yeah. people spend time giving me like their thoughts <laughs> and stuff. So I want to do something with it. Um, but yeah, pa tapping into who my audience is has been tricky. And it's been like an iterative process of thinking about what people can afford what people are entitled to, what people would enjoy or pay for. But then at the same time, I think the unifying thing is it's people who like Hong Kong, either from afar and think it's just a very interesting bubble of a place. Like right. it's such a weird, like it changes so quickly. Like <laughs> yeah, Hong yeah. Kong isn't just a place. It's like a place in a time. Um, so I think people who are fascinated by Hong Kong, whether they're from it or just observe it, like it in some way. Yeah, that's and like it, me. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And once you speak, and once like you get into the book and start unpacking stuff, you realize it, the issues in it aren't specific to Hong Kong. They're actually quite specific to like the world and the situations we face now about otherhood and like work and yeah. health and doing stuff for yourself versus your community. I think that's all in there and that's all quite relevant. Yeah. So speaking of the future, what's new? What's next for you? You're going to continue with the covers or do something new? I, I don't want to be like, I'm doing a hundred covers. Cause if I like put metrics on it, it stops being fun. Sure. So yeah, I'll like sit in front of the TV and I'll make covers still. And I'll post them on Instagram and whatever. I, but I don't do it because I'm like anthology two next year, yeah. get hyped everyone. <laughs> like crank these out. <laughs> yeah. I've got like 20 that aren't in the book, but I'm not in any rush to make anthology two. I, honestly, I think people look like, okay, you did one. We're good now. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I did have, so I have plans to take the interviews I've done um, and use them to create fiction books for kids. Just because when I was a kid growing up in Hong Kong, there was no fiction for children about where I was from. Yeah. Like I read Harriet the Spy. I read like a series of unfortunate events, Harry Potter. It's all in like England or yeah. America and nothing's really that Hong Kong centric. And I had, in fact, it might be behind. Oh my God, I have it right here. Whoa, that wasn't planned. Okay, I read this. Look how racist and sexist this looks. This was the book I had about Hong Kong that I could go with. Girl reporter, because you have to clarify it's a woman with a job. And then like Sampan man with the hat. Oh my God. This like 
look at the back. Uh, this is literally like something out of the 1950s. But I used this was these were the only things yeah. I could read about Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, and there's an uh, there's an author in Hong Kong called Nuri Vitachi, and I used to read like his stuff. He's Sri Lankan from Hong Kong, but his stuff was like set in Singapore, which was the closest I could get mm. to Hong. It's just I don't think anyway. Don't think there's enough like stuff for kids in Hong Kong to read about themselves. Yeah. And representation is important. I think I'm like super fortunate to be dipping into this at a time where Asian representation is getting taken seriously yeah. and getting funded. Yeah. But I'm basically planning out a series of books for kids um, or like young adults that would be the covers. So every cover of a Hong Konger is the cover of the book, but it's actually like a story inside. Huh. And they're like crimey, but like not too crimey that a kid couldn't read yeah. them. <laughs> and like, also, I find that with young adult novels, it's very difficult to find young adult fiction that's not like really sexy or really angsty. Like everyone's in a dystopian world, <laughs> and everyone's like <laughs> angsty. Yeah. And I was just, I was like not a sexual, like <laughs> sexual kid, obviously. But like, I was like very uncomfortable with my sexuality until I was about like you know last week so i was like <laughs> I, I was like just not interested in twilight i was not interested in you know divergent or whatever yeah, these books yeah. were that were like kind of like hot and heavy and angsty i just wanted to read like <laughs> mystery books so this is going to be geared towards like the reading level of a teenager but for like the dorky kid that didn't have a sexual awakening until <laughs> their 20s <laughs> so yeah that's basically my next plan and i've got other stuff coming through as well but I didn't haven't signed on them yet, so I don't know if I can talk about no, them. But no, I don't want yeah, to. No. So this is uh, yeah. so this is kind of the path for you, though. You're you're moving towards your your authorship, and the art yeah. will be part of it. Yeah, exactly. I've always wanted to write, and I think that I'm better at it than I am at drawing. Uh -huh. And the drawing's gonna like dry up soon. That's not where a lot of my inspiration is. My inspiration is in the stories of uh -huh. the covers and the stories of like the poems. And so 2022, I'm setting myself up with a few projects that will help me segue into the storytelling yeah. while still doing art to some degree. Well, great. Well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast when the, some of those yeah. come out. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like your Christmas friend that comes yeah, in. Once a, year. Like, that's the, once a year, you'll be like, that's the end of the season. Oh, God, Sophia's back. Oh, my God. Give her a mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut uh, up. <laughs> no, I think it's fun. I think the audience, I think my listeners will really enjoy hearing you. I think it's, it's oh, a good, great. good time. Cool. Um, fun fact, uh, we talked about Lowell High School a little bit. So Lemony Snicket was one year ahead of me at Lowell High School. And uh... No. Oh, no, you do not understand. I was, okay, <laughs> I, t I talk about like series of unfortunate events like I don't care. I cared so much. I had a cardboard cutout, like a dry erase cardboard cutout of o Count Olaf <laughs> that you could like rub out and write things on. And I would leave him outside my door and write messages to my family, like, don't come in, I'm doing a party. <laughs> I was so obsessed with Count Olaf that it wasn't okay. Like, people were like, okay, you know he's not meant to be a heartthrob. I would draw, like, I, I don't even know if you know that character. He's I the do, bad yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I would, he had a tattoo of an eye on his ankle. I would draw an eye on my ankle. <laughs> and like an eye necklace. I was obsessed with, oh, I... And then I found out Lemony Snicket's real name is Daniel Handler. Yeah. I thought I'd like cracked the biggest mystery in the world. Because <laughs> he's sneaky about it. He's he, a little bit, like, yeah. In some of the books, he doesn't even print it in the front where it has all the publishing stuff. I like found it out 
in like the 11th book it said daniel hands i was like who's that and i googled him and i was like oh my god that's him that's yeah. him but no one else around me cared sorry i just went off on a total time we were Love in me a, some lemony we were in a play together in uh at lowell high school yeah he was he was oh a harvey god. and i was dr sanderson <laughs> no oh my god is he as nice as he is in the book oh in he's, fact, he's yeah yeah he's he's he so i was in cub scouts with him we went to school together oh for, for 12 years yeah so uh we were in cub scouts together and so we go on these camping trips and you know by the fireside you tell stories yeah and you can imagine his stories even as an 11 12 year old kid his stories were amazing he's so entertaining wait he's got like a cub scout seed in book 10 <laughs> like in book 10 they go to like a yeah campfire. It, like, i might be in that one <laughs> you're in that oh my god i'm reading that again <laughs> yeah he, he wrote a book about lowell high school so there's a oh he did his what's first, that called his, oh uh basic eight or something oh. I, I you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna google this so i sound smart oh my god this own. has become the daniel hadler <laughs> appreciation society <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, they're a real, really nice family. And he's, lo he really supports the local bookstores. And yeah, it, it's funny though, with this, with this novel about Lowell, there were, there were some characters that we, we could recognize. You know, you... There was Blurtis Blinn, who's oddly similar <laughs> <Yeah>. to you. <laughs> well, we, I, luckily, I don't know if it's luckily, but I, I'm not close enough friends with him that I made it into any of the books. I have this book. So but like, I've been since I was like 12 I've been writing books that no one luckily gets to see and one of them is a book I wrote when I was in fact I have it I don't know if like I should go grab it but anyway it's like a book I um I wrote when I was 14 about my first year at boarding school and it's just like the ramblings of a very angry 11 year old and it like name it doxes everyone and I read I read it sometimes and I think oh my god this would be so funny to read but every single person who like bullied me in, in like boarding school or like I hated and they didn't even do anything like half these kids didn't even realize like didn't even know who I was and sure, I'm like yeah this girl like I'm not gonna say her name <laughs> yeah but your nemesis but yeah literally, she didn't know who you were <laughs> if that ever comes out oh my god I'm so sorry to everyone I was like a hateful child oh well <laughs> but that's hilarious lemony snicket wow yeah so it's called the basic eight Basically. And you could share it with your uncle. I'm sure he wasn't around at the same time as Daniel. But, yeah, yeah, he taught in like the 2000s then. Yeah, yeah, so, so much yeah. later. Oh my gosh. But uh, hey, uh, Sophia Hotung, thank you so much for coming <laughs> along and chatting. Waking nice. up early. <laughs> yeah, time difference. Woo, now I can stop my day. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a dark sky outside in San Francisco <laughs> here. Well, have a lovely evening. Thanks, y Curtis. Yeah, so if you want to know more about this book, uh, you can find it at sophiahotung.com on Amazon. And uh, you can just find it directly from her website as well. And so if they order it from you, you'll sign a little thing. And y Yes, but I only ship locally. So uh. I'm sorry. You have to be local. That's the caveat. Just because yeah. shipping so expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, international is no joke. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you have a really happy new year. Uh, you can write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com and give us a follow over at The Infatuation Podcast over at Instagram. And Sophia, your Instagram is the same as your name. It's, it's my name. It's my name. Yep. It's the name. <laughs> Sophia with the PH, right? Yes. Hotung, H-O-T-U-N-G. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so look it up. Take a look at the prints on on. There's a lot of them on Instagram, right? There's a, <laughs> That's a few. There's like, well, on my website, I think there are 75 for sale. And then I just like on Instagram, I'll just post what I'm doing. So you'll see like half baked work and stuff like that. 
what a, what a sell. <laughs> like, sorry, you've seen good stuff too, not just like my crappy work in progress. <laughs> I saw a cool YouTube of you walking people through the process. It was the one, it was the ballet school where you were walking people oh. through the, how do you actually do it? It was a time lapse of you doing yeah. it. Yeah, because Procreate records it for you. So I was yeah. like, oh, I can just talk about it while we do it. Anyways, yeah, that was yeah. super That's fun. a long video. You didn't have to watch the whole thing. I hope you didn't. <laughs> I don't okay. think I did, but <laughs> it was fun. Good, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so everyone out there, have a happy new year. And on behalf of Sophia and myself, we hope you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.